Welcome to the FPC Thomasville podcast. We believe human life has a designer, so learning to live by design will help you thrive within all your spheres of influence. Today, Reverend Skylar Adams' message is titled A Silent Confidence as part of our Silent Night sermon series. The scripture passage for today is Luke 2, 25-33, which will help us answer the question, where do we find confidence while waiting? We continue our series this week. And this week, we're listening to how the story of Christmas speaks for itself through a silent confidence as we look at the life of Simeon. To get us ready uh, to read that text, I want to ask you this. You know what it, what it means, what, it, what it's like to be in the right place at the right time. Right? Has this ever happened for you? You've been in the right place at the right time. Well, maybe if you haven't, maybe you've been in the wrong place at the wrong time, at the right time. This would be, you know, driving the 35 miles an hour in a 25 mile an hour zone at a school district, and the police officer was in the right place at the right time, and you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. The right place at the right time. God choreographing something quite unique. He leads us to read the story of Simeon. Luke chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, please turn uh, with me there. Luke chapter 2. We're going to start with verse 25 as we see Simeon was at the right place at the right time. It'll also be on the screens if you don't have to. Hear God's word. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God, saying, Lord, now... You are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Let's pray. God, give us eyes and ears supernatural ones, to see, to behold your Savior. By this, your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Good things come to those who wait. Do you believe it? I don't, usually. I believe it in theory. Uh, But, you know, it sounds good written, right? I think about the simple illustration of a waiting room in the doctor's office, right? You're, you're, you're held in limbo um, between being in control of your life to being out of control of your life, uh, to wait in that, in that sacred place that's usually pretty stale with fluorescent lighting and um, not always the kindest people 
and you're waiting. And you're like, what good could come from this? After all, I'm about to meet someone who's about to tell me what's wrong. Good things come to those who wait, maybe. Hopefully. You see, I think something happens um, if, if we're in a season of waiting, if, if, if we're in just a moment of waiting, we realize something about the deepest part of ourselves. We think we don't deserve it. We think that to wait, um, that we're better than that. You know, a big, a big, big word for this would be entitlement. Our hearts hate to wait because they're naturally entitled. You know, oftentimes if, if you wait, because this happens to me when I have to wait, whether it's a season or a diagnosis or a family member or something like that, I compare the shortness or the length of my wait to someone else's. And as a result, I try to find God in my debt. Hey, I've waited. Now can I have? Good things come to those who wait. Ah, perhaps. And our hearts say no. Our hearts say no. So the question I want us to ask of, of this text is, why wait? Why wait? And here's your answer. To see God. Why do we wait? To see God. Hmm. Simple and profound. Because when we wait, as Simeon did, we see God in two different ways. First, we see our need for him. And second, we see his love for us. All right, so why do we wait? We wait to see God. We see our need for him, and we see his love for us. This is what happens in the waiting. Look at verse 25, the second half of 25. It says that Simeon, and it describes him with, with two things. The only thing we know about Simeon is that he was devout and righteous. Later on, we learn that Anna and he are both old. These are the only two things that we know about him, and he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simeon's lifelong obedience, described in the words devout and righteous, his, his desire to align his heart with God's, has created in him a deep sense of his need. Scholar, what do you mean? He was waiting for one thing, the consolation of Israel. When was the last time you connected your need with someone else's? When was the last time you said, you know what, I, this is something I need. I bet they need it too. Probably, we don't usually do that. Simeon, through his life of faith, has produced in him a heart that has been stripped of entitlement. And he says, what I need my whole country needs, my, all of my people need, the world needs. Through his life of faithfulness, he has seen, as he's waited, he's begun to see God. Very literally, of course, but as he sees his great need for him. Consolation, you know, we get the word console and um, perhaps the connotation of soothing or bringing comfort. Maybe you've heard of a consolation prize, you know, someone who doesn't win, but they need, they need to feel a little bit good about themselves for, you know, sort of the participation prize, um, sort of the feel sorry for kind of thing. 
This is a lot deeper than that. As we're going to learn later, that the source of the vision, the understanding of the Messiah that Simeon has comes from the book of Isaiah. You've probably heard it said, you can't understand Jesus till you hear about him in Isaiah. And some words that Simeon's going to say locates the entire redemptive movement of God through this servant that Isaiah describes. And what's going on there? Consolation for the people of Israel is this idea that for all the ways that they've trashed their life with God, for all the ways that they've messed it up, for all the ways that they've chosen to live in a different way, God is going to take an ointment so strong, so much stronger than he has born, and he's just going to cover it. He's going he's to rub that, uh, that, that balm right over it console his people. Anna will talk about redemption, which has a different sense. But Simeon here uses this word consolation, and, it, and, it, and from it we understand that God is coming to heal, to restore. Chances are, if we went around the room, what you really want this Christmas is some healing in that relationship, is some restoration with, with that person. It's a deep, deep need of our heart to have consolation over these areas in our life. And Simeon, by his life of faithfulness and the work of the Spirit in and through him, he sees, he connects a personal need with a corporate one, with one so far in scope, only God could bring the consolation. Our culture describes you and I as somewhat broken, You'll hear sort of, um, I'm cynical, but I'll I'll hear people give interviews, whether it's an athlete or um, some other uh, familiar face, and, you know, I'm not perfect, but you you heard this qualification in in a quick interview, and it's like, no, dude, you're not perfect. You're, You're totally broken. That's what the Bible describes you and me. You remember the oil spill, or at least one of them, um, I think it provides a really good image for us when we think about um, the scope, the extent of sin and brokenness in our world. As it, as it sort of reached across the waters, what you, I mean, scientists for years were locating its effects. It, it, the, it's pollution. And Christian, for you and for me, apart from the grace of God in your life, the extent, the scope, the depth of your sin and brokenness is all the way, shore to shore, toe to head. Simeon finds something profound as he learns this horrible truth. He says, I'm broken, and not only a little bit, totally. Not entirely, but totally. We often choose to medicate when, we're, when, we, when we see our brokenness. We, we try to medicate. We try to help it a little bit. We, we love um, um, addressing the symptom. That's, that's just what we do. We numb. We avoid. We dismiss. We blame shift. It's not that bad. We see from Simeon that we wait because we see God. Because as we see him, we see our desperate great need for him. Christian, have you seen your need for him? Not as an add-on, not as a 401k plan, not as, 
your life. You need him, not, not to help you, but to give you life, to, to do something about that oil spill in your heart. For me, it'd be the grease from bacon on my heart. It'd be, you know, just sort of, it just sort of builds up, you know. No, that wasn't tasteful. That was a good pun. I like that. His lifelong obedience revealed his deep need of his help for God. Have you ever lived according to a standard? Maybe your family had a standard. Maybe, maybe your work has a standard. I think they both do. God certainly has a standard. What happens when you live according to a standard? You find out you don't measure up. During the Reformation, Martin Luther would describe this as the first use of God's law. It served as something like a mirror. Don't you hate when there's really good lighting on a mirror and you can see, like, everything? You know, like, man, I didn't know. Like, I've learned I have some wrinkles right here. Um, it looks like a scarecrow. I think I've squint a lot, but uh, squinted. The first use of the law, when we live according to a standard, this is why so many of us try to avoid it. We don't like to be held accountable. We see that we don't measure up. And there is something beautiful about that. We see that we have a need. And, we, and it's named for what it is. It's, it's, not, it's not pretended away. It's not blamed away. We see that we don't measure up. Augustine wrote, the law bids us. As we try to fulfill its requirements, as we should, my comment, we become wearied in our weakness under it to know how to ask the help of grace. Do you see how good it is that as we wait, we see our need? We see our desperate situation? Some of you are waiting right now. I know you are. And you're, there's, there's no more helpless place than to wait. But there's a beautiful promise of presence, this balm, this, this comfort, this reassuring grasp that can only come in that moment as we explore our need for God. Do you need him? You're worse than you think. You're more broken than you admit. And what has one of my professors said, if we knew the depths of our sin, we would vanish. Have you tasted it? Not to, not to shove your, your face into some soiled, uh, shameful thing, but have you tasted that before? You have. I've, I've seen you. You've, you've shown me. This is where a heart of confidence, a heart of peace, a secure existence begins to grow when we see that we need them. I think it's so neat uh, that you can't put a whole lot exegetically on it, but Simeon's just old. And some of the most um, humble people I know have simply lived life long. Because as they have, they've constantly realized, man, I, I need help. I need more than help. I need transformation. Why wait? We see God. We see our need for him. Second is we see God's love for us. We see our need. We see his love. Simeon's lifelong obedience of waiting revealed the height of God's love. This famous prayer, uh, poem, song that, he, that, uh, that Simeon that offers to God, we, we see as he's just channeling all this wisdom from 
his, his time in Bible school, um, just like it's just Isaiah just wrapped in, in like multiple layers. For my eyes have seen, verse 30, your salvation that you have prepared where? In the presence of all peoples. A life revelation to whom? The Gentiles. What? And for glory to your people Israel. Luke, remember how he wrote to this doctor named Theophilus? And one of his intentions in writing this was to show him, and Lord willing others, that the people who are following this rogue rabbi Jesus aren't crazy. Like they're not going to disrupt the social order of the day. That was one of the biggest objections to this thing called the way. And he's saying, no, no, no. Look at this, this man who was likely among the, the religious elite. Something like the Sanhedrin, Simeon. He was likely among them. We see that it, his faithfulness, his obedience didn't, didn't create some anarchist. He created a man ripe for reception of the true Messiah of the world. His lifelong obedience revealed the height of his love. What am I, what am I saying there? Who do you find unlovable? Maybe yourself? Maybe your neighbor? Some of the most religious people in history at the time of Jesus' birth could not believe in their hearts that God would choose to use his people instead of just have them. Simeon, by his obedience, understood that his role was, was, was that of a conduit, was that of a pipe, was that of a channel. The purpose of his redemption was to work in and through Israel for the sake of the world. The world. It was a stumbling block that God would love that person. Do you remember how hard it was for Jonah to, to, to preach the gospel to the Ninevites? Remember, Dr. Filson was preaching on that a few months ago, and it's because Jonah didn't know he had a need for the same mercy that God was so longing to share with those that we think are out of reach. When we wait for God, we see our need and we see his love. That it, that it brims over the bank. It, it, it just comes over what you would think. A lot of us play this game. If you find yourself unlovable, I'm not, I'm not attractive enough. I'm not intelligent enough. I'm not interesting enough. I'm not accomplished enough. Or you jump to the too much realm and you said, I'm too much trouble. I'm too much drama. I'm too sensitive. I'm too flawed. And I'm too angry. It's usually these twos or not enoughs that we find unlovable, whether it's our own heart or our friends. And guys, I got to tell you that that God chose Laos over China. He chose some random country to bring about the miracle of the world. To not, to not say, but, but actually demonstrate that his mission, his redemption, his consolation, to experience the height of his love is to see the extent to which it reaches Who, who isn't lovable? I think that plagues us more than we want to admit. We see God when we wait. We see our need. We see his love that is so much bigger than we think. 
Dr. Barr said, any biblical definition of righteousness and purity must include mercy to outsiders. Francis Schaeffer wrote, biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. Christian, your sins are no match for God's mercy. But you've got to get the sin part right or else you won't experience the mercy part. You could be a thousand times worse than you are. The oil spill could, uh, could cover so much more land area than any of us know. And you've been consoled in Jesus. You see... The person who arrived in the manger lived a righteous and devout life. He waited. He waits now for the consummation of his kingdom. And when he lived those some 30 years here, his righteousness at first resulted in his alienation, resulted in his ostracization. He experienced hell itself on the cross so that the heights of his father's love for the world bore through his punishment would overflow as he reigns now as king. You will not, hear me, you will not find confidence, peace, hope, joy, the fruit of the spirit in this life if you admit you're partially broken and say that God's love is limited. You won't. Also, you can't learn to wait a year unless you've waited a day. You know, this is, we're, we're, we're talking about waiting, and we see this sort of paragon of, of faithfulness in Simeon. For some of you, this is like, oh my gosh, you know, this is too far. You know, even my students who are, you know, 16, 15. How can you wait an hour? Have you tried that? A long obedience in the same direction, that ironic quote from Nietzsche, who said God was dead. Waiting is a, is a day-by-day game. The fruitfulness that we see in Simeon's life started because he waited one day. And one day turned into a week and a month and a year and turned into a lifetime. So I don't know what God's doing in your, your heart this Advent season, but... I hope that he might be graciously frustrating you. As he digs within your heart that thing that you're trying to keep the furthest away from him, your friends and family. He's trying to expose that. I pray that he would. Because I promise, as he does, and as you admit it, as you come clean face to face about it, whether in your own head or, or with someone else, that you will find a grace and love that you've never tasted. And in turn, that'll enable you to, to offer to someone what you've never given them, free love. I'll end with this quote. Tell, uh, Keller said, the fact that Jesus had to come humbled me out of my pride. The fact that he had to come. He saw that he, Simeon saw that he needed God. His, what happens, the, the first sort of side of the gospel coin is that you understand that you can't do it. The fact that Jesus was glad to come 
reassured me out of my fear. Some of us need to be, our pride needs to be dislodged. And some of us need to know that our Savior was glad to come. And I pray that wherever you are on 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 that side that you would hear that that he had to come to root the pride and he was glad to come because he loves you. If I had to guess, God's love language is quality time. Second, acts of service. We often want the fruit of the Spirit. We, we often say, let's be like Jesus before we actually attempt to be with him. The fruit are caught, not taught, as you've probably heard Tim mention before. Christian, as you wait, wait with him because he longs to give you himself. And as you're with him, you begin to experience these fruit that we so long for. For when we've been with him, we'll become like him. We don't achieve the hope and peace that we so long, we receive the hope and peace that we long for. When we wait, we see God, we see our need for him. And we see his powerful, tremendous love for us and our neighbors. Let's pray together. God, would you find us this Advent season as we prepare our hearts for your coming? We remember it in the past and we anticipate it in the future that we would receive you with sober joy. We see this exemplified in the life of Simeon and Anna. And we want it. But Lord, we don't often like the means through which you seek to give us these things. So I ask that you would wrestle our hearts to either experience and repent and be exposed of that thing that continues to riddle us. And that we'd also, as we do, experience a love so divine, so compelling that we would, like the psalmist say, that your love is better than life. This is our prayer. Would you make it so? And Jesus the Christ, amen.
The Apostle Peter tells us to set our hearts fully on the hope of the grace coming to us at the revelation of 